Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent and impact drive the inquiry of our conversations. We've decided to do a compilation for you. That compilation is a series of four shows that we chose, and we gave it a theme, Recognizing History, Celebrating Our Differences. Show one is Unlikely Intersections Friendship. Show two is Identity Theft in 1898. Show three is Black Lives Do Matter. And the final show is A Mile in My Friend's Shoes. These episodes come together so nicely in my mind because one thing we know is that Human Genome Project would say we're 99.8% the same. But in real life, we have many different experiences and our trajectories have been, while parallel in a lot of ways, very different. So hopefully this is an instructive episode of how we can navigate all the different intersections. Absolutely. Hopefully you will enjoy these. You and I, you know, having these, all these people in common, right, and, and having traveled all around it, and all of a sudden we meet during a time of crisis, right, to, to help others, and that, that, uh, that unlikely uh, intersection and what the result has been as a result of that. Yeah, isn't that something? A lot of the tightest bonds are always formed around difficult situations, right? And Florence, I think, for, for our area, really for all the Carolinas, was one of the most difficult times mm -hmm. in recent memory because the, the destruction was incredible. Mm -hmm. you know? And I know we had, at the hospital, we had about 10% of our entire employee base that mm. was facing severe damage of their homes. You, you know, it's interesting because around that time I was in a little bit of panic, and I'll tell you why. I was scheduled to do a two-hour training for some managers and leaders at McDonald's that was virtual, but we were without power for three days. So I traveled the city. Again, unlikely intersections, right? And I came across a coffee house that had an upstairs office in which they had power and they had internet. And so I did the two-hour training upstairs in the coffee house, right? Um, but that just goes to show how every day we come across these unlikely intersections, right? And it's uh, truly, truly amazing. Yeah, I mean, Florence sort of opened my eyes to so many different things, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had been doing a ton of social determinant work mm -hmm. in the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that had started over a year before that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was so fortunate that the intersections that had been created during that work really fed right into our ability to get into the community during Florence, right? Because if we didn't have those relationships, you know, I'm sitting in there at, at a command center trying to figure out how to get relief different places. Well, because of all of our work across the community, I knew tons of people to just call and reach out to. Mm -hmm. And that's that's ultimately what led to me being in Love Grove and meeting you that day, yeah, that's right? right? That's As I right. knew who to talk to and went we delivered some uh, extra supplies that we had for from the hospital out into the community to different places and ended up over there with you and sam yep i, I remember getting the call i think it was that morning and someone said hey sam is going to be serving food over in love road i said well man i'm gonna go over there and help 
And so uh, it was a a nice sunny day because, you know, the storm had basically passed. You know, you still had the power outages and the limbs down and all that. But he chose a place that was pretty, uh, pretty open to everybody and people could access. So I pop up over there and, you know, not only am I serving people, but I'm I'm serving myself too because the chicken was good. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the chicken. Was, all four of the pieces. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. The chicken was good, and you know we're serving plates. And like as I said, you know you got out the, the, of your truck and your your family, and I, so I got a chance to meet your family at the same time and had those Wilmington Hanover Hoggart kind of conversations and who was best and uh, the teams and the talent and you know that, that's for those who don't know that's special. Right, especially in, in, in Wilmington, because there's so many relationships that, and, and unlikely intersections simply because you may have attended a particular high school, but everybody knew everybody because we either played ball together in the summertime, we played ball together coming up in Little League. And so for those that you didn't meet coming up, to meet them now, those conversations are still extremely important. And you get the chance to understand um, how people have traveled in their life and unlikely intersections that they've had throughout their life as they've gone beyond that whole Hanover Hoggard rivalry. Yeah, it's a big, big web, right? (laughs) And, you know, the interesting thing is it's it's one thing to have the unlikely intersection, but then there's what happens next, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about our particular thing, I would give you the credit for what ultimately became the relationship that led to this show and everything else because we met, I went immediately back, command center for, mm-hmm. you know, getting out of the crisis. And it was, you know, it was an intensive work experience trying to do all these things that mm-hmm. needed to happen to deliver health across the region, mm-hmm. including to so many of our staff that were affected, uh, as well as, my own stuff that had, you know, (laughs) hurricane. And so, you know, time passed and were it not for you remembering and reconnecting, you know, that might've just been a one-time event, but isn't it great that it wasn't. One of the things I think you and I share in common, because I remember that you said it and I was, as soon as you said it during that meal, I was like, absolutely. That's how I am too. So I trust up front. Yes, yes. Right? And so here we're two people that have met. We're meeting for the second time in our lives, you know, middle-aged dudes, (laughs) you know, over a meal, really don't know each other. Right, that's right. Got some commonalities. But we we trusted up front enough to have meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. And that led to some pretty important things that have happened in this town and beyond. I would Already, agree. just I would, in a really short time. I would agree with you 100%. I got a book that's going to be coming out mm-hmm, early next mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the acronym behind it is Tell Me, mm-hmm. right? First thing is trust. Mm-hmm. T is for trust, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. E is for empathy. Mm-hmm. L is for listening. Mm-hmm. L again is, is limit. Mm-hmm. Limit certain things depending on the situation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. M is maintain, whether that's friendships, whether mm-hmm. that's health, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And E is to eliminate all true barriers, right? Wow. And so if you think about the fact that we connected on some common heritage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that put us in an empathy space right away. Right. So Absolutely. here you got two dudes that trust up front and empathy exists. And then we're listening to each other. Cause we want to hear 
the stories that the other guy has about what it was like right. at Hoggard versus New Hanover. That's right. right? <laughs> That's right. And so That's right. it set us up for success going forward. You know, whether that was engagements that you ended up getting working through the hospital, whether mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. really the startup nonprofit that became NC Swim, whether that was any of several other things we've done in the community mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. You know, or whether that is ultimately me becoming a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 coaches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All those things were born out of conversations and relationships that were based on trust, empathy, and just listening to one another to mm-hmm. understand, you know, how can I potentially have a little bit of a positive impact right. on my friend, right? right? In, a, right. In, a, in, a, in a way that is purposeful and benefits a lot of people. And, and let me give you one example of that. I remember being at my mother's home early one morning a couple of years ago. And it, I want to say it was in August. And <clears throat> she had gotten up to get herself together for the day. And she tripped and she fell. She tripped and fell because she had on some bedroom shoes that she probably should have tossed away years ago. But who... Who am I to tell my mother which bedroom shoes to wear and which ones not to wear? And so she tripped and fell. She broke her leg. And as I'm there uh, with her, uh, you know, hearing her go through the pain that she went through, one of the first people I thought about calling was you, simply because I knew that you could kind of open the way for the service or the treatment that she needed. I remember calling you that morning. I said, hey, I have, I said, uh, you know, doc, my mother has, um, she tripped, she fell, she broke her leg. I've, I've called the rescue squad and we're gonna take her out to Cape Fear. And you said, you don't have anything to worry about. They'll be waiting for her when she gets there and, you know, they'll give her the red carpet treatment. And so when my mother arrived, in the ambulance, <laughs> I remember someone saying to her, you must be important. And she says, I am. <laughs> but it was all because of making the call to you, the friendship we had established, the trust that we had established. And, you know, it's just who you are as a person. I've seen you do those kinds of things with other people as well. So it's embedded in who you are to do that. And, and, if I never said thank you for that and that I'm grateful, I am grateful, but that's just an example of how this relationship, an unlikely intersection has happened over a very short period of time. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because the, the truth of it is, you know, your mother is one of our own, right? Right, As right. a long-term uh, employee of New Hanover Regional, and it's obviously important to always take care of your own. Right. And that's kind of how I view the whole community. It's not mm-hmm. uncommon for people to reach out for different things, health-related. I always try to help. I don't always get it, right? Because right, it's such right. a complex, you know, it's such a complex world now in terms of disease management. And I'm just, my background is vascular surgery. That's mm-hmm, what mm-hmm, I know and mm-hmm, what I've done. Mm-hmm. But I do know people. And, you know, one of the things, talking about trust, in my career, one of my one of my aspirations was to just be a trusted person on the inside for anybody who needed to. Got to figure out which one to use. Do you use your instinct? Do you use over intellect? Do you use intellect over instinct? Is it a combination of the two? Because we've never been here before, 
And this has created what I like to say a new reality, not a new normal, but this is a new reality and every day is a new step and it's creating much more unlikely intersections in all that we do every day as we move forward from uh, or move further into this thing called the pandemic. Absolutely. You know, and the interesting thing is these unlikely intersections occur and it turns out because people aren't familiar with how to handle things like that, there are lots of crashes. That's right. <laughs> there are lots That's of crashes. Right. And right. you see all these bizarre things maybe that you would never have imagined. You know, you never would imagine the amount of, I would say, fear. Maybe it's anger that is inside of people based on what they've been through. Uh, that comes out in all these different ways, whether you talk about an increase in violence, whether you talk about crazy things that happen on the highway, whether you talk about just the level of basic human civility that people are treating one another with. I mean, we see it all the time in the healthcare setting uh, when folks are coming in. I mean, you've got all these assaults in emergency rooms across the country, mm -hmm. some fatal, mm -hmm. right? And it's just different. I mean, who would have thought that the environment would be dangerous in that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there have been some, some, key, some key terms, right, that people have been talking about, especially in the business space, right? And we use it every day, the uncertainty and the ambiguity of it all, right? And when we think about uncertainty and ambiguity, it's always existed. But the pandemic, man, it just brought a, an acute awareness to those two terms of ambiguity and uncertainty and how people are going to uh, operate throughout their, their day, not knowing whether or not they go to the grocery store and if there's milk there or if there's water there. And now we're coming upon hurricane season in this area, right? And so that even even puts more of a strain on, on our our system, as we saw back in uh, with Florence, the destruction had happened, how long it took the power to get back. And then I think it was doing Florence when we, we experienced the gasoline, where the prices went up because they couldn't get gasoline to this area, right? And there are other areas in the country the same way, right? So it's, it's going to be real interesting this fall during hurricane season to see how much more we are stretched, but how many more unlikely intersections will happen. So we can look at it one of a couple of ways. We can say, well, you know, man, this is, this is not a good time. Or what are the opportunities that, that present themselves because of these unlikely intersections? Yeah, yeah it's, all about the, it's all about the opportunities, right? right? It's about seeing them. It's about maybe having a high enough level of trust to be able to listen and understand. That we have. I would have told you at that time that you were wrong because I just visualized a more diverse and inclusive society based upon playing sports and playing ball and how friendly and brotherly we were. You know, I like to use the phrase, we bled together, we sweated together, we cried together on the field, right? That builds a bond to me and whatever happens where that bond doesn't is not as um it doesn't mean as much that's bothersome to me right and so I often ask the question so what happened you know when 
all of a sudden those bonds, we don't contact each other anymore. We rarely see each other anymore. And, and you look at society and knowing that we played sports against and, and and we're just not as cohesive as we were. You know, what happens? Um, it's, it's always interesting um, to me to hear the excuses because that's all they are because we've done it before. So why do we get away from it? Because sports is probably, from an institution of bringing people together, it's probably what people, like I said, you cry, you you bleed, and you, and you perspire together, right? And uh, it's, it's, just, it's just difficult for me not to see uh, what I thought would be, given uh, where we are in, in 2022. And that begs the question, what does it take yeah. to – make it be more like the vision that you had, the expectation that I frankly had as well uh, at the same stage of life. What does it take and what might that look like for us? Yeah. Um, what do we have to do? And more importantly, what do we need to stop doing? Right? Because there's a lot of things we need to stop doing in order for us to, to come uh, closer together as a society, you know, because, you know, they're, Again, policies and barriers that sometimes are put in place. And so what do we need to stop to do? Stop doing what do we need to end? Uh, and then what we need to start doing as well, as you mentioned. One of the things that has struck me, especially as over the last five or six years, as as I've personally gotten deeply into into this work in the communities is proximity. Mm -hmm. You know, the to quote Brian Stevenson's mm -hmm, number mm -hmm. one thing, proximity, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, the NC Swim story, along with all the other health factors, kind of took me to a space. And at first, it's it's uncomfortable, right? And you, as you're close to these disparities, to these things that you feel like are unjust that shouldn't be, these policy differences, whatever the case may be, you're uncomfortable, and, and there's a decision point there, right? Do you step away from the discomfort, or do you stay in it? And for me, the choice was to stay in it. And over time, a pretty short time, I began to realize that I was staying in it no longer despite my discomfort, but because I was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point, I think, that I began to be able to make a a better difference, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it, it really attached to my sense of purpose and, and a core value of justice that for some reason I have, I guess, my mom and dad instilled yeah, it yeah, in me or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, it was that it was that shift, right, to stay with it beyond the point of being uncomfortable and ultimately be staying with it because I was uncomfortable, because those things shouldn't be allowed to persist. There should be something better. Yeah, I would agree with you. And it's interesting because from your perspective, you know, you're, you can be comfortable if you choose, right? But you're choosing to be uncomfortable because of the, that whole justice paradigm that's been embedded in you by your parents. And I said, well, I have a friend who was a surgeon, and guess what? He told me when he cut him open, everybody looked the same. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. It's, there is an illusion mm. that the business decisions are not life and death. Mm. 
Because mm. if you look at what's happening in this country, I would submit to you that in many cases they are. Mm. Mm. And we have to be, we can just look at the disparities in life outcomes to see who the casualties are. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that that is difficult for people to see. And it's a place in my career in leadership that I've always struggled, even in even in healthcare leadership, right? Because I'm looking at where business decisions are made that I think may be risky mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to attach that person to the fact that, you know, certain decisions really are life or death, mm -hmm. right? Do you have things a certain way that sets up the safest environment? Do you have you know, the right equipment? Have you invested at the right pace? And a lot of people in healthcare actually are coming around to getting that. But it's it's hard, you know, because the truth of it is, is it feels safer to be able to use three words that say it's just business. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. feels safer, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. personal to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. But if you're the surgeon... Your business is personal, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And yes, when you cut them open, they all look the same. And yes, in a lot of specialties like mine, there come points in time where you understand that if you can't solve a problem with your team in the room, then the patient may not make it out alive. Right. And it is a different. It is a different. Um, emotion that gets evoked in that in that setting and it and it makes it seem high stakes relative to some of the business decisions in healthcare but i would say that the main difference is actually scale mm, okay right because in that room i'm talking about what happens to one person those business decisions are scaled across the whole population that's served in a given situation and so we really i mean i say that to indicate we we do take great care with those decisions we don't always get them right and we have to really scrutinize our our data our mm -hmm. outcomes and mm -hmm. our impact mm -hmm. right today's topic is identity theft and we're going to go back in time we're going to go way back in time over a century to the identity that was stolen from Wilmington in 1898. Fascinating that two native Wilmingtonians are struggling with the identity of our hometown and the town that we now live in. It's amazing. It really, it, it, it really is. Right? What would Wilmington look like, right? It would be probably a more vibrant, city uh, from a cultural perspective. Uh, it would be a city where there would be more opportunity from a commerce perspective. Maybe some, some larger organization come in that would give the ability for those to be employed, right? And, and to in, improve the tax base because we know the tax base has to be increased and improved in order for us to continue to grow. It would be a city where um, I think the demographics now are somewhere around 72% uh, 
white, maybe 13% African-American. Let's bump that up to maybe 20, 25%, right? Um, it would be a city that would be considered, you know, a safe, a safe city, uh, a fair city. Uh, it would be a place where I would want to strongly recommend friends Wilmington is the place that you really need to be, and here are the reasons, one, two, three, four, five. At, that, at the present moment, I can't do that. Right? At least I don't feel I can do that. Others may feel differently. Uh, it would be a city in which I would think that the university would have a vested interest in all communities, right? It would be a city where we were known, we would be known for taking care of our own. Everybody was would be interested in taking care of their own. And from time to time, Wilmington has shown that brilliance. When we think about hurricane seasons and how the hospital galvanizes its strength, you know, in the city, it takes care of its own. But that's only in crisis mode. We need to be able to do that on a normal in normal mode. So that's that's the that's the picture that I would paint that I would love to see of Wilmington. What a great uh, topic about how well we respond to crisis. Mm -hmm. And we're conditioned to it. We know how to get ready for it. We know how to act in the middle of it. And we know how to lift each other up afterwards to a certain point. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of energy. And you know what happens after is maybe where we get stuck. It would be vibrant. I mean, we have beautiful weather mm -hmm. 12 months out of the year, mm -hmm. really, with like limited exceptions in every month where, you know, you wouldn't maybe want to get out as much. But the thing is, is it could be a 12-month-a-year outdoor, people coming together, great place to eat, mm -hmm. healthy food, great education for our kids, mm -hmm. building the next generation of entrepreneurs, tech giants, mm -hmm. educators, mm -hmm. physicians. Mm -hmm. That's what we could be. And it seems like it's within reach. Mm -hmm. And then that one event put a glass ceiling on our town. Mm -hmm. And we were no longer this inclusive community when it came to opportunities. We were something else. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the beginning of an identity theft mm -hmm. that has taken away who we could have been, but only up to now. That's right. That's because right. we can still be all those things, and we should. And we have a lot of minds, I think, working on it now. So I still have hope, and I think we still need to honor the heritage that we're not where we could be. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And we need to figure out how to move forward. You know, this whole identity theft uh, concept around, <clears throat> you know, you and I both know people who um, maybe they gained a nickname while they were growing up. And for whatever reason, they're still trying to live up to and have tried to live up to all of their life that particular nickname. But what that nickname did was it took away from who they were who they were authentically. That nickname tried to get them to live up to the expectations of others versus them living up to their own expectations. Mm 
Mm-hmm. What we're talking about mm-hmm. for 1898 in Wilmington is we still have a wound. Mm-hmm. And we see it based on what the opportunities or lack thereof are. You know, and in, in surgical terms, you know, some of the first things you have to do about a wound is is clean it up, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we've mm-hmm. all cut ourselves. The first thing we need to do is, you know, wash all the dirt out of there, mm-hmm. right? Look mm-hmm. and see if there's anything in that wound that's unhealthy. Get rid of it mm-hmm. so that it can begin to heal. And a lot of stuff has to happen in order for that wound to heal. Most of it you don't see. It's behind the scenes. It's policy, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. things like that that you don't really see. And you have to survey what's behind the scenes mm-hmm. to say, is that having a good effect on wound healing or is there something still wrong? Mm-hmm. We have continued to have a lot still wrong. That means we need to do another operation Mm -hmm. to clean that up. Mm -hmm. Revisit that policy. Let's think about its effect on the wound because what we're shooting for is a scar. You know, a scar tells you what's happened, but it's still strong at that point. A wound is weak. We really do want to have a scar of 1898. We will always see it. Mm-hmm. I would, in my heart of hearts, we talked about what Wilmington could be. Mm-hmm. I would hope that everybody that's a part of Wilmington would understand 1898, what happened, mm-hmm. right? That it would become a part of the fabric that we would, you know, really just make that a part of who we are and own it, own it for what it was. And, and <laughs> accountability, responsibility. Not that the people living today were responsible for what happened, but understanding that history and who was responsible. And as you said, let's begin the healing process, right? You know, I, I think of a couple of things. I remember, I think it was probably the 1990s, maybe early 2000, the conversation was around an 1898 park to commemorate what happened or a grocery store. The decision was made that it would be the part to commemorate the history of 1898. And I thought to myself, people need to eat every day. So you talk about policy. So they put up a park where you can go and you can stand and take pictures, but no one can eat. And so there's still not a grocery store on the north side. Now, you know, you have uh, Frankie's, which is you know, on uh, over there off of Prince's place, uh, I think 11th and Prince's. However, the park is over off of 3rd Street near the where the Taylor Homes area. And there hasn't been a grocery store in there in many years. I remember when the old A&P was there many, many years ago. Had to be the early 70s. So we're talking about early 70s to uh, 2022 without a grocery store. That meant that those people had to go either out to the Castle Hain area or to Market and seven, North 17th Shopping Center, which was Market and Kerr Avenue. Where you are. That's right. And we have a lot of positive pieces in place and more today 
than we have in quite some time, right? So the piece is in place to put a food co-op in the north side finally. Mm-hmm. You know, that's in the near future, we believe. There's a piece to help provide food access in Southside since the IGA burned down several years ago. That's in sight. Mm -hmm. These are really small pieces. And and even as I say it, I'm I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, we're just talking about people having something to eat, right? (laughs) Just that simple. Just being able to go to the store to be able to make it. And we got... You know, we know that we've got a childhood food insecurity rate of about 20% mm-hmm. in our county. Those are some of the reasons why. Mm-hmm. And so we should certainly start now to reestablish that identity. I mean, I certainly, I find it unappealing, sad even, to say that I come from a community where 20% of the kids don't have enough to eat on a day-to-day basis. Yeah doesn't make any sense I would have never thought that in in, in Wilmington North Carolina uh, that food security was an issue would become an issue I never thought it would happen in the country but when we look at policy and those people who create policy you know I, I, I termed uh, a phrase several years ago intentional poverty zones 23 I think it was we were living out in Los Angeles, and the family got tired of being 3,000 miles away. So I started to look for other opportunities. And it just so happened that I had the opportunity to come home in pharmaceutical sales. When the guy said, well, this position is in Wilmington, I was like, Wilmington, that's my hometown. I can come back to Wilmington and be a pharmaceutical sales rep. Why not? So it brought the family back to North Carolina and it enabled me to become a pharmaceutical sales rep. I left Wilmington again somewhere around 2003, 2004, went up to Durham, and then ultimately from Durham to Columbus, Ohio. The second time I came back, it was basically, one, to create a consulting business and to make sure to take care of my mother because I'm I'm an only child. However, I mentioned to my daughter that I did not want her to live in Wilmington. I didn't see the vibrancy of the culture that's needed to sustain a particular lifestyle. Um, I didn't see the commerce here that would pay someone uh, what they were should be valued at given their edu- level of education, at least in the African-American community. Because you talked about those who you know who gotten their undergraduate, their medical degree, and decided not to come back to Wilmington. Wilmington is always, and I think the sociologists call it this, Wilmington has always suffered from brain drain in the African-American community. Talented, intelligent people who go get their education, go into the corporate setting or start businesses, but they don't start them in Wilmington. They go elsewhere. And so for me, it was about making sure that my mother was okay. Whereas others, I have friends today who say, well, man, when are you going to leave? When are you going to leave? I said, well, you know, I've done decently in, in, in Wilmington. And, and you know, it, it has to be more f- for me to be a change agent, right, in, 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 in the city. 
because at some point in time it has to. And if I'm here and if I have some of these credentials, then I should be able to help facilitate that process of helping the city become what it should be, right? A city that provides opportunity equally for everyone, a high quality of life for everyone, a great education for everyone, where neighbors can once again know each other because we live in a time where neighbors don't know each other like they used to, right? I think, and, and Wilmington has all the elements of that. It has the water. It has, uh, I think, the infrastructure. For me, the challenge is the culture, which is around mindset, right? How do we change the mindset of Wilmington for it to become what it needs to become? And a lot of it starts with leadership. It starts with leadership. And some of the leadership, um, they can do better. I'll just put it that way. And that really takes us to, you know, another, another real question that we have to ask. If we intend to get ourselves into the Wilmington that folks might envision as that truly vibrant place, as a community of belonging, you know, a healthy place to live, whatever you, you want to call it. Who are the key players? Mm. Mm. That's a great question because um, sometimes <clears throat> the job of a leader is to understand that they might not be the one to lead the organization or the city to the next level. They may have a vested interest as leaders currently but if the city is to go to another level and become that vibrant culture that everyone is looking for, what I'm hearing out of all of that is metrics. We got to be able to measure what we do, right? And oftentimes, for whatever reason, it's been difficult in the, the social setting, the nonprofit kind of setting, right? Because people are just... They get the resources, they use them, and they say, we use them all, we need more. Regardless of how they use them, they use them and they need more. But it has to be more than that. Here is what we use them for. Here is the outcome of the utilization of those resources. And this was consistent with what we said we were going to do. Versus, you gave us $200,000, we use it all. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, we've seen that play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we spent every penny. So now we need 200, 250000 for next year, right? But there's no impact. There's no difference that's made. And we as citizens need to hold organizations accountable. So as you talk about the nine people or the, 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 the small group of people that could lead this, there has to be a combination of some of the, the, the more the more socially conscious people from a, I'm going to say from a nonprofit side in the mix with those who are from the for-profit side, right? Because those mentalities are different, but I think that we can blend the two to create the metrics and still be humane in how we go about it. We just don't want to be, from a business perspective, it shouldn't just be widgets. We're treating people as widgets, right? 
because that's a pure business. It's bottom line, I don't care. Here's what we're going to get. I don't care exactly how you feel. We shouldn't do that. We can blend the two. And I think there's a, it's so I don't know if it's called social capital, social, social capitalism or something like that. It's conscious capitalism. But we can do that. And so this conversation is going to be uncomfortable, but it's much needed. And so I look forward to eagerly delving into this conversation. When you heard about that decision, how did it hit you? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I was reading an article about city council making the decision to take down the sign. And as I read the article, I went directly to the comments, and I saw a couple people put down, the sign in and of itself is racist. And I began to think to myself, the sign isn't racist. The, you know, it's the people who are racist. The sign is just the sign. Black Lives Matter. Right in the wake of George Floyd and mm -hmm. Ahmaud Arbery's murders. Mm -hmm. And it ended up that there couldn't be agreement on Black Lives Matter, so they made it Black Lives Do Matter. Right. It's not really legitimate to put out a bunch of facts that's right. And call it the truth, right? That that's just right. makes a story. That's right. That's right. That's right. The whole truth is when you get everything out on the table. And I think we're probably overdue for that, uh, you know, not just here, much, much more broadly in our country and probably across the globe yes. uh, than where we are now. Not really having the conversation around we're all human, we have different hues, but as you like to say, when you cut them open, everybody looks alike, right? Creates all kinds of different realities. You know, say racism in a polite crowd, no matter where you are, mm -hmm. and, and the reactions are often almost incredible, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things I always like to try to do now, and this is from making the mistake many times, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having the scars, the show. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so... What is the definition of racism? Mm -hmm. And people put out a whole lot of different ones. You know, the one that I like right now, and I've got it written actually right here, so I don't even misquote it in the least bit, uh, is that racism occurs when individuals or institutions show more favorable evaluation or treatment of an individual or group based on race or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of times in the public discourse, Folks make racism about oppression, mm -hmm. about disadvantaging someone, and certainly that. Mm -hmm. This particular definition begins to change it and say, mm -hmm. let's look at systems that have perpetuated this, and let's look at the actually look at how folks are advantaged mm -hmm. as opposed to how they're disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And you see that play out throughout all of America because you can look at the Fortune 500 CEOs. Mm -hmm where 90% of them are white males. How can that math possibly work out unless there are certain advantages that play out over a long period of time? Mm -hmm. How could, how, what must be true? What must be true for that to be the case? Exactly. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was doing a presentation for New York Life uh, probably 2016, and it was for their top 20 women leaders within the organization whatever to what i am now right and it just it takes them back into that perception as reality space 
And sometimes that'll arrest the conversation. But how do you go forward from that? Right. It, you, it, it's, it's interesting because you do hear and you do see the comments all the time. You guys always want to talk about race. Cut them open, they look the same. When I cut, I, I bleed, right? I know that the hue of my skin has, serves a biological function. That's all it serves, a biological function. So how did you take that and make that a disadvantage for me and make your hue an advantage for you? We're 99.8% the same from a genetic standpoint. And so when you really start thinking about it like that, you get to the place where, you know, so why is it so hard to have the discussion? And I think a big part of it is just fear, mm -hmm. right? And I think about my own personal journey where, you know, people that are about my age, your age, about the same, you know, you're taught from an early age for the most part that racism is wrong. Mm -hmm. Isn't like I thought it was. And at that point, there's a decision to make, right? Do I lean into it? Do I sit in that discomfort and figure it out, figure out how to impact it? Mm -hmm. Or do I just back off into my comfort, which is what you spoke about a little mm -hmm. bit earlier, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, and we know this from the business world, we know this from the physical fitness world and health world, a lot of times comfort is the enemy. Yes. yes. So talk a little bit about how comfort is the enemy in this case. You know, it's, it's interesting uh, about comfort because comfort has been used in, 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 in a number of ways, you know, coming out of uh, segregation, desegregation, uh, African-American families, uh, jobs, paycheck buying homes, they couldn't resist as they did maybe in the 60s uh, <clears throat> because they, they were comfortable. As a result comes not wanting to have the conversation around race and, and racism um, to solve it because there's, there's the, the, the lack of courage of what I might have to give up, right? Um, and nobody's asking you to give up anything. Uh, we're just saying, make the acknowledgement. It, it is. We can go back to, to, to sixteen nineteen. We can go back to the the, the, the uh, academic work of Theodore Allen when he talks about certain things around the creation of what we know as the white race in America. Right. It's always interesting when you talk about race and racism, uh, because everybody will say, "Well, it's a it's a social construct." Yeah, race is a social construct. And so it, it is mythical. It doesn't exist. Am I inadequate? Am I a failure? Mm -hmm. Am I insufficient? Am I insignificant in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that power that guards that fear. Mm -hmm. And so you have systems where things are put in place that the power creates an illusion, mm -hmm. an illusion that we're, and the person in power is not vulnerable. And so then they don't have to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And we see that play out. I, mean, I think we probably saw a lot of that play out in the Black Lives Do Matter sign removal. Mm -hmm. We saw a heck of a lot of it play out around the whole Black Lives Matter movement in general across the country. And we're seeing it play out coming into the election cycle in a big kind of way. 
um, you know, not to get too political, but we do need to have these conversations and peel it back to what's really at the root of it. Have been experienced more trauma for whatever reason, simply because of the, I'm not going to say for whatever reason, simply because of the color of the skin. You know, it's like, I'll make the example. You and I, we leave out of here. We're going down the street driving. If I'm pulled by the blue lights, there's a certain approach that they're going to come to me with, not knowing who I am or what I do for a living. They see me a particular way, given what their experience has been and all that they've read and all that they've seen. Your experience is going to be a little bit different than mine, simply because of the hue of our skin. So we have to understand what the differences are. And that's the conversation that we're so fearful of having. Let me show you what my life is like. Let me show you what your life is like. And then let's bridge these together to understand that we're both human. But simply the hue of my skin gives me a different experience. When I ride down, you know, the, the street and the blue lights pull me for whatever reason, or I can see them pulling behind me because maybe I'm listening to music and I snap my hand and the car jerks a little bit and they want to see if I got drugs in the car because I jerked my steering wheel just a little bit because I'm enjoying the music in my ear, right? I've had that experience. Today's episode inspired by a listener, our good friend Linda Pierce. Yes. Mm. Uh, because we're talking about, as I sort of thought through, we're talking about, so I think her original question was, what if you changed and, and I was black and you were white for yes. one year? Yes. Uh, raising a family, a professional, all those things. So I don't know where we'll end up landing. Uh, with today's discussion, but I'm definitely willing to take on the discussion. <laughs> with what we talked about, and we'll get into that. Um, but as I thought about it, man, it was like, and I think I mentioned to you, I know more about what it is to be white in America, being that I've had to grow up and assimilate to white culture and white educational system just to survive um, from this perspective. And so, you know, there are those double standards that kind of exist uh, when it comes to, I'm going to say, the African-American. I've never even heard anyone say he's not Chinese enough or he's not Asian enough. He's not Latino enough. That's a phrase that kind of, as you see yourself uh, navigating this place called America, as a, as as anyone black, um, you know that that whole you're a sellout because you speak well, you're well educated. I remember, I remember growing up in Wilmington and playing basketball at Day Street Center. Knew a lot of guys up there, played well. The minute that I went to college and came back to play my first time, I was then reclassified as he's a college boy now. And I'm like, so what changed? All time. Yeah. Uh, and people see this little boy as a danger yeah. to them. Yeah. And we know that fear uh, – 
fear creates a lot of bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Fear creates a lot of danger for people in the 1920s, which basically closed all but two of the black medical schools in the country. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was only Howard and Meharry that remained. Mm-hmm. And blacks really weren't eligible for any other medical schools. And what we see right now, for instance, in our industry mm-hmm. is that this remains a profound problem. Mm-hmm. And we have peer-reviewed work coming out on a regular basis about how important it is for what's called provider concordance. And the best example I can give of that is it's very profound in um, OB, in obstetrics, mm-hmm. where the studies are very clear that the outcomes for black women and children who are taken care of by a black obstetrician mm-hmm. are much better than those taken care of by a white obstetrician. But the reverse is not true. Mm-hmm. So this is very clear. Now, what we don't know is exactly why that is. We can hypothesize on mm-hmm. why it is. Mm-hmm. But in point of fact, there's such a profound shortage of physicians who are uh, any other ethnicity than white that we know we have real problems that are driving these disparities that we talk about all the time Mm -hmm. in the dashboard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's a a bit of a range from our topic, but I think it's pertinent because, Mm -hmm. again, what we're Mm -hmm. talking about is headwinds, right? Mm -hmm. So I've I've been a surgeon, and granted, the medical schools across the country are integrated now, without a doubt, but what we know is that just because – they're integrated doesn't mean that the opportunity is the same. So the likelihood is that if we made that switch, I might be looking at a total different career path just because of opportunity to get into school. You know, um, I think it was United Negro College funds is a great mind. Uh, 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 a mind is a terrible thing to waste, right? And that's what you're talking about by if someone is not given the opportunity or an opportunity all people need is an opportunity in order to uh, excel Uh, I know we like to say that um, if the playing field is equal we'll always excel but that's not the case in reality and so what I heard from my parents was You got to be two times as good, three times as good, four times as good just to get the same opportunity. And for the most part, I can say that now from a white male perspective, (laughs) which I get that opportunity today, (laughs) I don't have to be. We can take a look at the world of politics. We can take a look at some people who were president and they didn't have to be anything but average in order to become president. Um, So it's an interesting topic. You know, one of the things, or one of the questions I've always asked, and I've asked this of some, some high school friends, you know, what happened once we graduated from high school? We, we played ball together, as I like to say, we, we bled together, we sweated together, we cried together. 
And I thought those were bonds that would be kind of a life, lifetime kind of bonds. But what I quickly found out after graduation is all of a sudden the paths were different. And so when does, when does the separate walk begin? For me, it began in high school with some of my friends that I played ball with. But when does it actually begin? I know you and I were kind of talking about that. Yeah, there may, I'm sure there are probably individual differences, mm-hmm. but but I can absolutely pinpoint when it really began for me. And my background maybe you know is different than a lot of people, but certainly not unique. Um, you know, I grew up the son of a coach, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. during the era of school integration, and mm-hmm. so. My peer group from the time I was small, the athletes my dad was coaching, the athletes I played with, even all the way through college where I was affiliated with the basketball team, so the my real closest peer group at that time, all the way through to my first career as a school teacher, it didn't happen yet. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I can say for sure when it really happened in earnest was – at the mm-hmm. moment I started medical school. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, it was obvious to somebody who had the right eye on it, mm-hmm. which was not me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not realize that all of a sudden I was living in a segregated world. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the fish can't tell us in water. <laughs> right, right, right. right. And so as a white male, most of the people that in that peer group as a medical student, as a medical resident, and even as a physician were fellow white males mm-hmm. and then white females. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until it wasn't until I had come back to Wilmington and my son was maybe three years old and we were at some community event and I was talking to my high school classmate, happened mm-hmm. to be Jonathan Barfield. Mm-hmm. And on the way back home, my son asked me, he said, Dad, who was that brown man you were talking to? Mm. And I didn't know what to, like, it really, uh, I'm curious by nature, so it really made me think. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what to think about it, so my wife and I talked about it, and really we realized that the environment that he was in all the time was pretty highly segregated. I mean, as a three-year-old, he didn't even know. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he had not encountered mm-hmm. a black person mm-hmm. at that time, somebody mm-hmm. whose skin was dark like that. Mm-hmm. And so it was really at that time that my wife and I committed to make sure that the kids had different experiences mm-hmm. because we knew without that intention mm-hmm. um, it couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. But then when we get back to our original sort of question of the episode just because I recognize it doesn't mean I know what it feels like mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. that has kind of become a theme uh, not just for my life in the work of mm-hmm. equity and health equity but a theme in life mm-hmm. actually and mm-hmm. it, it actually applies to a lot of other things mm-hmm. other than mm-hmm. race mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. more I apply it the more curious I get the, the better I t- seem to understand mm-hmm. so it was a valuable experience although certainly one that uh, was uncomfortable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know after high school I attended a historically black college 
University, North Carolina Central University. As I reflect back on it, I did have some high school friends that I played ball with who ended up over at Duke University, right across town. So we did keep in contact, and we did play tennis together and hang out because he played football, I played football. And, and so that relationship, you know, was there. I come back home to visit, and a good friend of mine, I, you know, I buy all my tires from. You know, I go see him. And uh, so there were some selective relationships that remained, but the masses of the relationships, for whatever reason, um, began a different kind of, of journey. And I've always been real curious about that because a friend is a friend is a friend uh, to me, and it really doesn't doesn't matter. But it's obvious there are some differences, and we know that life happens, and so that's some of it as well. Um, but that whole thing about what we see in this country about you know, separation and race and segregation, it, it, it happens, you know, it, it, it happened for me around that whole adult time, right? And I'm sitting here and I'm trying to wonder, and I'm like, I, I'm not understanding, right? I'm not understanding. And then because you, you go, you get your degree, and you, you go into the workforce. And <laughs> my first position was with a transportation company, Norfolk Southern Corporation, which is in the rail, the, the, the railroad business. And so... It's a different kind, of, and it was in Georgia, so that was a whole different kind of experience, um, because you had you had management, you had union, you had certain philosophies and mindsets that you had to deal with that may not have been your own, and and you know you're talking about at a time where in that particular company um, there wasn't a great deal of African Americans being hired in the position that I went into, and so. It was really keep your head down, uh, work hard, and see where you can make it. But, of course, that whole diversity, equity, inclusion, it was just getting off of, 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 of the ground. And you could see within that work environment what was what, right? You kind of had a feel for where you actually stood in that work environment as a, as a white male or as a black male. You fully understood where you um, where you stood, but as I look back and as I reflect on uh, what it would potentially be like for me for to be a white male, um, unlike you, I have what I think a, a a clearer picture of what that would look like, right for me, uh, and part of that goes to I have the privilege of learning about my race in school as a white male, whereas others don't. Yeah, and that connects two themes, right? So um, I know for sure that in real life when I was in school, we didn't learn essentially anything. Dr. King. About history. <laughs> right, right. You know, we didn't learn anything about 1898, right. which happened right here in right. our hometown. That's right. That's we right. didn't learn any of that stuff. Um, and that allows that, I mean, ignorance allows things to, to remain hidden. And one of the things I think that remained hidden to me and really connects with when this great separation comes is uh, the different, the, the different living conditions mm -hmm. that often exist. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. again, in the research, what, uh, 
we can say for sure is concentrated poverty Mm -hmm. is a very different thing. It means a different thing for opportunities. It means a different thing uh, for future potential of multiple different kinds. And across the 50 states, there's not a single state where white people live in concentrated poverty. Mm. Zero. Mm. Now, Mm. if you change that lens and you look at how many states there are where blacks live in concentrated poverty, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's 26 states. Mm -hmm. And we know North Carolina is one of them. Mm -hmm. And we know that that phenomenon exists in our hometown of Wilmington because in communities of color, the poverty rate's about 36% which is well over double the overall poverty rate and much higher than the, than the rate of white poverty. Mm-hmm. It goes deeper than that too, though, because it goes to the way out. Because when it's concentrated poverty and folks don't see those opportunities or don't have different connections that expose them to opportunities, it's a trap. Whereas when it's not concentrated poverty and people can see what those opportunities are and maybe have connections to what those opportunities are, that's an escape hatch. So if we go back to our original question, Mm -hmm. who's at risk, what's at (laughs) risk, you know, like I'm saying, you know, so my odds would be more likely than not that no matter what state I went to as a black man, concentrated poverty would exist in my communities um and in the town that i live in i know that it exists you know that's real interesting because i've 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 heard you know a lot of black people make this this comment said i didn't know i was poor till i went to school because even though we talk about the concentrated poverty No one had labeled it in the in, in the black community. It it just what what it it's what was, right? And you didn't see it. You know, you you got up, you lived, you did what you you did, and you weren't concerned with people saying, "Oh, you're poor," you know, you're living in poverty. And oftentimes, from a resource perspective, there may have been quote unquote private poverty, but from a love perspective, there was abundance. And so we kind of lived off the love of the family and people whispering in your ear, you can do what you want to do, wherever you want to do it, how you want to do it. You just got to believe in yourself, right? And you got to have a plan. And, of course, the whole uh, line behind education, go get an education, go get it. That's the, that's the future, right? That's how you get out. You know, I can tell you that as I grew up, you know, there were probably 15 or 20 gentlemen who were old, maybe five years older than I. And as I watched them and observed them growing up, I saw all of them go off to college. And so I knew what I was going to do based upon what they did. And of course, their parents were telling them, you know, go to college, get a good education, go get a good job. Now, what that should be today is go to college, start a business, or start a business, then go to college, it should be a little bit different because we understand the importance of entrepreneurship as, as it relates to economics in the African-American community and, and any community. But 
the, the you know the the college to to because college isn't for everyone. Um, the college to job, you know, is not what it used to be, and so entrepreneurship, different skills that you know are definitely needed, which also leads to another one of those points here. See, I have the privilege of finding children's books that overwhelmingly show me in a positive um, perspective. We know that's true. We see it all the time. And so many, same same thing in my research. There are mm-hmm. so many uh, obvious places where that is the case. And mm-hmm. not only, you know, that's the positive spin. Mm-hmm. The flip side is, is that if I'm a black man, I'm the villain on television, right? (laughs) I'm the dangerous one. I don't care if you're going to print media that was happening in 1898 where Mm -hmm. I was portrayed as a monster Mm -hmm. or whether you're looking at any of the television that has existed throughout the course of my life where I'm typically the criminal if I'm the black man, uh, including even now. uh, And we see it. We see it in portrayals. On the news, I saw one last week where the victim of the crime, in this case, was black. And that's the picture that was in the article, the victim (laughs) instead of the perpetrator. And we know how that typically plays out otherwise in the whole mugshot scheme, right? So that's another thing that I just, again, when I look at it and when when I contemplate what it would mean for me, to take that on, yeah, it's just tough. I mean, I, you know, we can we can reflect back on Katrina, and you could see the news media, and they were talking about how they showed pictures of black people who were walking through the water and had goods in their hand, and the news media said that they were looting, and then we saw another picture on the same news with white people walking through the water with goods in their hand and the newspaper said what well, they were trying to survive they were they were they were trying to make it with everything that they had and I'm like so what's the difference right it's the same but in the news media's mind there was a difference and that difference was based upon the skin color and how they actually see a group of people versus those who look like them and they could say it and not even realize it. And someone has to point it out to their attention. Did you see what you just said? Did you hear what you just said? And it's like the ignorance of, or, or the, the lack of awareness of, of not even uh, saying that. Yeah. The biggest risk, right? So mm-hmm. we, we make this switch. The biggest risk for me really is that phenomenon, right? Because what underlies that is this implicit bias Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. is that as a black man people see me as more dangerous Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of times even if there are other black men Mm -hmm. i mean we saw it i remember jesse jackson talking about it one time Mm -hmm. because he came to wilmington when i was a senior in high school Mm -hmm. and talking about how when he looked behind him, if it was a white man, he was relieved. And if it was a black man, he was more nervous. And I, that struck me as funny then, but I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm still a little bit struck in understanding why he said it. Mm-hmm. But I understand the phenomenon now because we are 
immersed in it yes constantly and and media portrays it that way this gets to the topic of inclusion that's right and you're starting to see some things done a little bit better now in some realms mm-hmm. netflix sometimes apple sometimes other other media sources but it's not systemic that's right right that's it's right. taken intention and effort to do it and even then it may not be done exactly right so that underscores the importance of having inclusive teams mm-hmm. inclusive workforces mm-hmm. Because you need to really be able to vet things that you don't understand through someone who can understand it, no matter who you are. It's a core phenomenon of why inclusion is so important on a team. It's no different than you can't have all point guards playing basketball, right, because you'll never get a rebound. That's right. Right. You you can't have all scorers who are marginal on defense because you'll give up too many points. That's right. You have to have a cohesive team. Where people may have some overlapping skills, but a lot of what they bring is unique to their given worldview and perspective and mindset. And it's the melding of that, the curiosity to work through tough uh, situations, to have difficult discussions, Mm -hmm. which brings out a whole nother thing. I'm sitting there thinking like, man, if I'm Terry and I'm trying to have a difficult conversation, then I become an angry black man. Exactly. (laughs) And I've been called that before. And I'm like, no, it's not anger. It's passion. And you've mistaken passion for anger because of what you've bought into, given the images you've seen on television or any movie that you may have seen or anything on the news media, right? And so a little, my, my, my voice goes up an octave, and he has to be angry. And I'm like... There's no such thing as an angry black man. And there's no such thing as an angry black woman. You know, we become passionate about how we how we speak, and we are an emotional people. And as a result of that, sometimes a lot of that is misconstrued simply because of the antics of, as I'm talking with my hands now, right? Because we do a lot of that, whether we're doing it in fun and, and talking. I do. A, I'm a trash talker, right? So I love to talk trash about sports and I use the same kind of antics but now we're having this conversation and I'm using the same kind of antics it's just who I am it's just who we are as a people and if those if those who don't understand would take more time to understand even if it's having a one-on-one conversation with someone like a young lady asked me when I was in high school we were at the beach together. It was senior, I think it was the end of the year. We were down at Wrightsville Beach, and all of the seniors were down there, both black and white. So the young lady, she was comfortable enough to come up to me and said, you know, Terry, how do you guys dry your hair? I looked at her, and I smiled. And I said, you know, I dry my hair the same way you do, either a hair dryer or a towel. But it was obvious she didn't know. But she was comfortable enough at least to ask someone, so now she does know. And so for those who don't know, I would say find somebody that you have that 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 you can have that uncomfortable conversation with, but who will give you uh, actual information. Here's part of the challenge. I think there's some research that says that most white people do not have a black friend. That's part of the challenge. You can't solve anything if you don't have the ability to communicate right and now why that is the case i really don't know because that's truly exclusion and not inclusion and that's part of the challenge of why inclusion doesn't work in the workplace 
because most white people don't have black friends. That brings us to a really important question. So what has to change Mm -hmm. in, in order? So in our perfect world, if we were to make the switch, it wouldn't matter. Right. right. Let's right. just put that right. out there. If right. we could, if we could pick anything and say, when the world was perfect, then it wouldn't matter. That's right. The color of your skin wouldn't That's matter. That's right. How many things and what are they that have to change in order to make those kind of switches viable? Yeah, that is a long list. A long list. And ultimately, I'll, I'm going to say that's a whole cultural transformation, right? That's uh, that's a lot of humility of having to ask those that you may not like, what is it like? How can I become better at communicating with you? How can we treat you better? How can the system as a whole, because this thing is systemic, how can the system as a whole not be changed but be transformed, which means you got to deconstruct the system and reconstruct the system with all parties involved in the reconstruction of the system. And that kind of gets to, you know, what each of us individually have to do Mm -hmm. to bring to the game to collectively make an impact, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's both. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that, I think it's so important is that proximity because you talked about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, if we don't have cross racial friends, we're missing a lot of the world. That's right. Um, you, you can't read it in a book. You can't. And a lot of our whole theme today has been, you know, I can intellectualize some of these things. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to feel what it would feel like. Right. You know, and as we have these conversations, we try to empathy would indicate that that's what we try to do, right? right. We try to convert it to a feeling. Um, and that's what we have to do. I think it definitely, it starts, it can start individually mm-hmm. with relationships and that can go a long way. Mm-hmm. It won't go far enough, though, until we have the right courage as the white guy in the room Mm -hmm. to call out some things, to say, why do you think that's true? Or what would make you say that? Mm -hmm. And then ultimately to work on policy. We have to get to the policy realm, and we have to be careful about that little that little paradox we always talk about intent versus impact, right? Right. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned I am. My impact is what my impact is, and that's what I need to really be cognizant of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we kind of talked about, or I painted the picture from Katrina and how the news media painted African-Americans who had goods in their hand and, and whites, and that leads me to this. As a white man, I have the privilege of escaping violent stereotypes associated with my race. All the way back. <laughs> All the way back, right? Like, yeah. I yeah. keep seeing the, the picture that we see. And, you know, this is, 
we just happened to be recording this episode in the anniversary week of Wilmington's 1898 massacre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at the newspaper clippings from News and Observer back in that day and how they were portraying black men in particular as monsters mm-hmm. using fear. Mm-hmm. And we know power guards fear, mm-hmm. always has, always will, to create something that really ultimately we haven't gotten over because you know mm-hmm. we've still got this open wound of 1898 but you know that imagery that drives fear uh, is is so powerful and how do we use curiosity to begin to question that because we saw it we saw it uh, I saw an episode on 60 minutes last night that mm-hmm. talked about some of the things that social media was driving basically and how it really was driving the anger and so you've got this 80 percent of people who basically shy away from that maybe 85 percent you got seven percent on either extreme of this just venom that's being spewed Mm -hmm. but then you've got this majority of people who at that point just don't engage i mean they don't recoil they don't Mm -hmm. react they just Mm -hmm disengage and let the anger reign and mm-hmm. it and ultimately over time their acquaintances their social connections and we know what they look like we've already covered in this episode how you know we have a lot of segregated relationships but it can be segregated mm-hmm. in those realms it's as true. well that's right it drives these perspectives that bear no resemblance to the current reality that's right and and you know you have to ask the question then is <clears throat> Where, who, who's collecting the money? Because at the at the root of all of this and all of that that you just described lies some profit. And there's someone profiting off of all of this chaotic behavior that's happening on social media, whether you have the, you know, and what I mean right against the left, I'm not talking about politics. You have one one side against the other, right? And then you got these people in the, in, in the middle well, whether you're on the right or the left or in the middle, there's somebody making money from you. Right. And if we, you know, as we're approaching election day tomorrow, yes. we can also bring politics in it That's and we right. can talk about how, going back to our original scenario, I, as a black man, have been disadvantaged by the whole way campaigns have been run mm-hmm. to make the country scared of me, whether I'm a a drug dealer, whether mm-hmm. I'm a super criminal, mm-hmm. super predator, yep, I think yeah, it was, yeah, was a super you know, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> All these things, right? And it, basically the offshoot of it is that it prevents solidarity. Yes. Between, uh, especially in the whole labor-producing part of the workforce, right? And I think one of the things that as we talked about this topic, really hit me so hard and made me just feel you know I don't even know how I felt but you know the thing about those the way those campaigns have run the way the dialogue has been is that it has made it so people would say they would rather be anything yeah. but me Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's that is so fundamentally messed up. Uh, you know, I mean, and when I think about that, I don't even know 
I'm just, just stammering around trying to even figure it out because I think what is hitting me is a feeling, mm-hmm. you know, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard uh, for white men to describe their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yep, but yep. but, <laughs> right. but right, like, I, you know, I'm ha- I have this feeling of how profoundly unjust that really is. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I intellectualize the piece of it because of the friends that I have that are, mm-hmm. that are of all different ethnicities, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but especially in my case, a lot of black male friends mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who are like yourself, who mm-hmm. are just incredibly gifted and have, who have enriched my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about what a tragedy it is that such a large proportion of our society is being duped into missing out on that. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that, that black people talk about all the time uh, around uh, us is how others like to steal our culture, our music, our way of dress, um, our way of dance, how we do things. And there was a, a comedian, and you might be familiar with him, uh, uh, Paul Mooney. He says, everybody wants to be black, but nobody wants to be black. Meaning you want everything associated with, from the, from the entertainment, the athletics, uh, from the cooking, you want everything associated with black culture except the black people. And that's something that has always kind of resonated with me, right? Is that as I, you know, as I, I around the world, you go out and you, you take a look at all this happening, right? It's like, wow, I can imagine, you know, that the origins of that, you know, in the black community, the origins of that in Africa. But yet and still, um, those origins being preyed upon, right? You know, I can take a look at the uh, the logo of Starbucks, and I can tell you where that came from. You know, not many people knew it until you had to go do a little bit of research. But you know, that was an an African logo. Uh, logo, uh, or actually, that was an African queen that they utilized and, and crafted into the logo for Starbucks, and a lot of people don't know that history. Um, and so when he says everybody wants to be black, but nobody wants to be black, that really resonated. Now I'm going to go to another one of the points here And the points is I have the privilege of playing the colorblind card, wiping the slate clean of centuries of racism. And of course I've heard many, many people say, um, I'm color. I, I don't see color. Right. And I'm sure if I were a white man, I probably would say the same thing because it gets me off the hook very, very quickly as a white man. I don't see color. I just see people. And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, kind of takes me back to my story about yeah. my three-year-old son, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. When did I go blind? <laughs> right? Of course, we all do see it. And that's, that's right. you know, that's and right. now I love, I think, I think it's Melody Hobson that does the, does the TED talk on, uh, color brave rather than mm-hmm. color blind, and I do mm-hmm. think that's so important because what's missing is white culture doesn't celebrate the richness of the other cultures. We don't even really celebrate the richness of our own. That's our mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but think about how much more robust we could be 
if we celebrated people's strengths. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of our whole show, right? Like mm-hmm. you're never going to hear us say "woe is me" on this show. If, That's right. If you do, I want you to call us out on it. That's right. You know, because <laughs> there's always room to maneuver. There's always yeah, room to be right. curious and get better. And you know, the thing about the intersection is traffic keeps coming to it, That's right? right? All the time. And we have a conversation like today, and guess what? There's no answer. That's right. You know, we're not going to get to a resolution on what this would look like. But hopefully we've helped a few people. And we appreciate folks listening to us and to our audience. If you want to catch up with us a little bit more, find us at unlikelyintersection.com. Look for us on YouTube. Like and share. Uh, Find me at Doc Phillip Brown on LinkedIn. You can find me, Terry Jackson, PhD, on LinkedIn. And we hope that this particular episode uh, really provokes thought, more importantly, provokes conversation so that we can begin to understand each other better, so that we can have the solidarity needed as a country to move forward. Thanks for joining us today.